politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only independent source of conservative news and views here at Conservative Review Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for a brand new month, September 1st, New Frontiers. But somehow we continue to encounter old principles and old problems. You know, it's funny, folks, if you look back four years, four years ago to the date, really five years ago is when the Trump phenomenon started, when we had a fraction of the problems we have with criminal aliens, when we had no such corona tyranny, we could never have conceptualized such tyranny on our lives. When the mob violence and the jailbreak and the crime wasn't nearly as bad. When we did not have mandated transgenderism in our law and culture by Republican appointed justices at the Supreme Court. We didn't have any of this. Yet even then, there was a recognition, finally, that the Republican Party, as it was constituted, was completely broken. That it was worthless in stopping the inexorable onslaught of the left with their decrepit values, the socialism, the anarchy, the pro-criminal stuff. And in fact, there was an understanding that the Republican Party was downright complicit in a lot of this stuff, which is why people wanted a radical change. And despite everything the party poobahs have done, usually they get their men in the White House. During the GOP primary, Trump wound up winning. But as I always say, if you put together Trump and Cruz's share of the primary vote, in most states it was over 70%. So over 70% of the primary voters chose someone who was at least perceived as being well outside of the party establishment control. People wanted something new. What is shocking is how few people realize that four years later, when we have the results of the jailbreak and the results of the corona fascism and the results of Neil Gorsuch and, and the transgenderism at the Supreme Court, these are devastating systemic civilization killers, economic killers, mental health killers in the case of of the coronaphobia that we're dealing with, which we'll talk about a little bit more today. But you look at it all, and it's shocking how few of my colleagues realize the party has not changed one iota under Trump. If anything, they just get him to change. You look one after another, and I'm, I'm going to go in no particular order today to discuss what I'm seeing all over the place. We discussed yesterday... Senator Tom Tillis, he's one of the Republicans up for re-election that has a close Senate race. So this is like what we're pining for, what we're cheering for. Oh, we need Republicans to win the Senate. Tom Tillis, we need him to win, to, to win re-election in North Carolina. This guy apologized publicly for not wearing masks at the convention. I mean, literally taking the issues of our time and, and never forget the degree of severity of tyranny 
to say that you cannot walk around and breathe free air without a face burka? I mean, this is something that in our wildest dreams we couldn't have envisioned six, seven months ago. Yet now we can't even have Republicans fighting against it. And they agree to it and help promote the fallacious premise of it. Mind you, everywhere it's been tried, Peru, the Philippines, Miami, it spread, even if it was in place for months before, with universal compliance. Hawaii had an indoor mandate since April, an outdoor mandate shortly after that. They actually have more hospitalizations per capita right now than Arizona because it's near the equator and it came there last. What's called the Simpson Hope curve of influenza viruses, kind of a curve of, you know, in a monthly cycle of, you know, if an epidemic hits in the northern latitudes, when it would reach near the equator, it's like clockwork. No matter how much evidence builds, it doesn't help. No one's willing to fight it. Then we have acting DHS Secretary Wolf, Trump appointee, we argued against him. He talked about right and left wing violence. The president has been very clear on this. As you know, we will uh, happy to provide resources to bring this violence to an end. Violence that, again, across the ideological spectrum, left or right, the violence needs to end. What is he talking about? The DHS secretary? I mean, when you're worried about homeland security and you see the biggest threat to our homeland, more than, than Islamic terrorism, it's within, it's everywhere. It's in mid-sized cities, it's in small cities, as well as large cities. It's BLM and Antifa. And they're talking about right wing. I mean, where is it? Frankly, it's time to fight back. Where is this opposing side willing to go tit for tat with these bastards? I'd like to know where they are because I can't find them. But that's where we are. This is the DHS secretary. One after another. And then folks, I know I'm going to slay a golden calf here. And I know I'm going to disappoint you. But a lot of people have asked me about Kimberly Klatchik. This Republican candidate who happens to be black from the 7th District of Maryland, which is a big chunk of Baltimore City, West Baltimore in particular, you know, people know I'm, I'm from the area. So, hey, what do you think? That viral ad that was great, you know, showing how the Democrats don't care about blacks in inner cities and they've harmed them. What a great ad. And I've kind of been silent, haven't I? I haven't said much. I read between the lines of the ad and I looked her over. I don't mean physically. I mean, just peered through, through her soul. And, you know, it's just... If you don't have someone that you know ahead of time is schooled in our way of thinking, they're going to buy into the GOP establishment dogma. And particularly if they're going to be touted as a black conservative celebrity, you're going to have the Tim Scott syndrome, if you know what I mean, where you're going to want to you're, you're, you're just going to be want to be embraced by the party. So you'll go to wherever their messaging is. She tweeted out yesterday the following. The first black president didn't tackle criminal justice reform. He didn't even attempt it. President Trump, Trump made a significant impact in less than three years. Let's give credit where credit is due. So she is no different from the rest of them. 
This is the way we fight the left by owning the left, by owning their policies. Instead of getting up there and, and taking her, you know, publicity stunt, which in retrospect, based on what she's saying now, that's all it was. I'm sorry to d- disappoint you, but we slay golden calves here. She should be saying, you SOB Democrats who are letting criminals out, fueling gang violence, opposing gang legislation. Again, you want to talk about black lives? I estimate that anywhere between, there have been between 1,500 to 2,000 excess black homicide victims as a result of the jailbreak, BLM agenda, the passivity of the cops as a result of the war on their, on their existence this year. That's the message we need. It says like, Oh, you know, Trump let out more criminals than anyone else. That's great for blacks. Really? This is the refreshing change in the Republican Party? Oh, look at these young Republican women. These these up-and-coming stars. What makes someone a star? They have a little bit more flair and coolness in an ad they put out promoting left-wing policies? This is the crap we sought to get away from. But it seems to come around in a circle. No matter what happens. This is happening everywhere. And then we have today, thehill.com. Senate GOP goal is to vote next week on targeted coronavirus relief bill. So rather than putting a provision in the existing budget bill, cutting off funding to cities that engage in fascism and violate the Constitution, to cities that have this rampant violence. Senate Republican leaders hope to vote next week on what they are calling a focused and targeted coronavirus relief bill. It's focused on getting people back to work and kids back to school. No, it's not. It does the exact opposite. It throws more money, more free money. Encouraging more of a shutdown. Spreading more coronaphobia. I mean, this is the thing. And then as I said yesterday, you have Debbie Burks out there speaking on behalf of the White House. As good as Scott Atlas is the other direction, but then she countermands what he says. Traveling the country, praising Democrat governors and and bashing areas that that don't do that. What what, What exactly are you hoping for in the Republican Party? I'm trying to figure that out. Because what we're doing is not working. One of our listeners reminded me of an article I wrote that is so ominous when we're talking about this. Um, and I'm going to read it to you today. I wrote this article January 19th, 2017. What's special about that date? Well, that was the last day of Barack Obama's presidency, the day before Trump's inauguration. It was titled, What Conservatives Can Learn from the Liberal Warrior. Goodbye and good riddance to the most radical and destructive president of all time. 
With that said, before we let the first post-American president fade from our memory altogether, let's reflect upon his commitment, passion, and tenacity in pursuit of his anti-American ideas and try to harness that same zeal and commitment for our ideas. Now, by the way, I'm going to read to you a series of accomplishments that he made, and you guys are going to be shocked at the measure, meaning the measure of liberal fiscal policy that I talk about under Obama has been blown out now under Trump and Republicans. But anyway, let me read on. I wrote this again more than three and a half years ago. It's undeniable that Obama has accomplished for the left more than any other president has accomplished for his respective party's ideology. The $9.3 trillion in debt he has accrued to bankrupt this country, destroy free markets and capitalism, create crushing dependency, and permanently grow government will live on long past his tenure. The numbers are staggering. At least 65% of all children now live in a home that receives some sort of assistance from the federal government. Over 82 million Americans live in a home where there's at least one Medicaid recipient. 49.2% of all Americans are receiving at least one government program. Now, by the way, just think back. $9.3 trillion in debt over how many years? Over eight years, right? Do you know how much debt we have accrued now? Okay, so it's been, what has it been? Three years and, and eight months? Three years and seven and a half months, I guess you'd say? The debt is at 26 point. Six, 26.6 trillion. Just simply unconscionable. Again, 26.6 million. Think about that. When Trump was inaugurated, the debt stood at 19.9. Okay, so I'm just doing the math in my head here. That's like 6.7 trillion. 6.7 trillion in debt for a little bit more than three and a half years. Obama over eight was how much? 9.3. So we're on pace, if you would prorate it, we would be on pace for something like, I don't know, 13 trillion in debt. And that's only going to grow exponentially because we're just getting started with the corona fallout. So just keep that in mind. But let me read further. Most of all, Obama's signature legislation, the crown jewel of socialism, has destroyed health care and health insurance in a way that no middle-income family can control their own destiny without unsustainable government su- subsidies. And unless things change, the core of his plan will not be repealed. That's what I warned about. And indeed, that is what has happened. Let me continue. The way Obama has violated our sovereignty and encouraged so many illegal aliens to remain in the country will create a permanent grievance for amnesty. His realignment of allies to enemies and enemies to allies has remade the world. Now, to be fair, I will say that in a foreign policy level on that front, I think is where Trump has made the biggest changes. But again, the domestic stuff is so bad, I don't think any of us care about that at this point. But again, the permanent amnesty grievance. DACA is in place. Obamacare is in place. 
Now look what I say. I mean, th- th- this is eerie. This is eerie looking at this back at the at the foot of the mountain, right? When we're going up that mountain of promise, of Trump presidency, of the Republican control, coming off of eight years of Obama. Look, look at what I wrote at the time. Yet nowhere was this transformation more evident than as it relates to our founding values of, the, of this country. Obama was right to declare yesterday at a press conference, again, I was speaking back then on January 19, 2017, that he, quote, could not be prouder of the transformation that's taken place in our society just in the last decade. The sexual identity alphabet soup has become a national religion. Marriage has been redefined. Sexuality has been redefined. Our founding religious values have essentially been criminalized. And he has completely crushed any semblance of organized opposition to even its most radical agenda items. Republicans are now further to the left on basic family values and civilization issues than Democrats were prior to Obama. Again, folks, think about that three and a half years later with Gorsuch and things like that. Now, let me just get to the punchline. The biggest lesson of Obama is that he was comfortable in his own skin. He wasn't just anti an anti-Republican, although he continued to use blame Bush as a tactic to promote that agenda. He had his own affirmative agenda for which, for which he was willing to suspend all his to spend all his political capital enacting and marshalling every resource and every agency of the executive branch to promote the cross-section of fiscal, social, and foreign policy liberal ideas. He didn't make excuses. The few places where he failed to enact a liberal agenda item wasn't because he didn't try. It was because the electorate categorically rejected it and took away the House from him for six of his eight years in office. Obama never appointed a single person to any position in any agency of any department that was not a full-throttled, three-legged stool progressive. His administration spoke with one voice towards one mission as it relates to the critical policy battles of our time. They never deviated from their message on a single issue. Remember, this is not me writing this now. This is me writing it on the last day of Obama looking towards a Trump administration. Some might suggest that Obama was punished for his overreach and is indeed a failure because Democrats have lost an unprecedented amount of power under a stewardship, especially on a state level. In the short term, this is definitely true. Voters have emphatically rejected his radical progressive brand. However, in the long run, he has completely neutered any legitimate opposition to most of his ideas and has thus shifted the entire universe of the political landscape inexorably to the left. Again, folks, this is the Overton window. And it's so true. I warned about this. That something took place that permanently shifted the debate. Now, obviously, what's, what, what we're discussing now, that the legitimacy of rioting and coronafascism is well beyond even what he could have imagined. But this is what he put in place. And then look at my observations just from the beginning of what I started to see from this administration, even before he took the oath of office. Just watch any of the confirmation hearings, meaning of Trump's impending cabinet picks back then, and you will see the nominees and the GOP senators accept every radical premise of the Obama era. They have accepted the fundamental philosophy behind Obamacare and have agreed to keep the Iran deal. Now, on that front, in the end, Trump actually backed out of it, um, 
But let me continue. They refuse to oppose one morsel of the transgender agenda and will not lift a finger to tamp down the absurd gender bending and social engineering in the military. None of them appear comfortable espousing conservatism openly the way Democrats loudly and proudly champion their agenda, even after losing an election. Indeed, Obama has successfully shifted the entire universe of the political landscape so far to the left that even when the Republicans create the minimal two to three deviations of space between the parties, they are still well to the left of where Democrats were in the 90s on critical issues. However, all is not lost. Republicans can still render Obama's tenure a failure if they countermand his agenda the same way Democrats averse the progress of the Reagan revolution. If they would trade in their diffidence for an Obama-sized confidence and passion on the beliefs espoused in the GOP platform, they have an unprecedented opportunity to roll back previous Democrat handiwork for the first time in modern history. The two-party system doesn't have to operate like a ratchet effect, a metaphor Margaret Thatcher often used to explain the one-directional progress of liberalism when the left is in power and the inability to reverse one iota of that momentum when so-called conservatives are in power. But that will take a commitment to pack the executive agencies only with people who share every view of the GOP platform, the same way Obama appointed only those who shared his values. It will take a catharsis for every elected Republican for elected Republicans to finally end their identity crisis and move beyond simply being, quote, better than Obama or the lesser of two evils. It will take an affirmative agenda, a positive, consistent, intellectually honest, and forward-looking agenda on sovereignty, security, free markets, liberty, property rights, and a strong civil society. An agenda that can stand on its own veracity, not just as an opposing view to whatever the media or the left is promulgating at any given moment. And finally, it means no more excuses. Republicans control all levers of the federal and most state powers and can easily roll back the critical items of the Obama years and forge a completely new path on so many domestic and foreign policy issues that have been locked in the failed intellectual ghetto of elitist political thought. Stop talking about Obama, Hillary, the media, or blaming failure to repeal Obamacare on something as absurd as a parliamentarian. Who are we? And what do we stand for affirmatively? The only context in which we should continue to mention Obama is to remind ourselves of his determination and zeal to see his agenda actualized through thick and thin. The success or failure of Republicans in the next four years will boil down to this simple question. If liberals are willing to sacrifice it all in order to implement their agenda unconstitutionally, how much more so should we harness every constitutional means of advancing the ideas this party supposedly adopted in the much vaunted platform of 2016. Folks, again, you could Google it if you want to read it in its written form. Google my name, what conservatives can learn from the liberal warrior, January 19th, 2017, a day before Trump's inauguration. And you look at that now, You look at the squandered opportunities when they had all three branches. You look at how this entire thing has been about, oh, but Hillary, but Hillary, but Obama, but this, but the media, never about what is it we stand for. And indeed, on the issues like crime, we adopted the left on the issues like debt and and the budget and Corona fascism and BLM to a large extent. Obamacare for sure. They adopted the entire left's agenda. Transgenderism, the courts, judicial supremacism. 
This is where we are. This is the long view that is relentlessly consistent that you will not get from other shows. And I know it's not pretty. Might not drive ratings. But it's the only thing that will get us to change. And now it's just moved on to Hillary, moved on to Biden. Whatever the next Democrat villain is, it's basically we can't allow Biden to win. But, but okay, I understand. But you're allowing Biden to win if you allow the Overton window to move over so much that you need to tell me that the only reason to vote Republican is so he doesn't win. This is happening over and over again. The warning about how, notice how I talk about how every office of every agency in every department had people that didn't deviate from Obama's view. Look at the people that deviate from Trump's campaign promises. There's more people who do than don't. And I'm not just talking about the deep state. I'm talking about political appointees or Senate-confirmed appointees. One after another. Or people that maybe were there earlier, but, but you know, could have easily been fired after they publicly broke with the president on numerous issues. But no, here's where we are. The party has not changed one iota. The only thing that it has changed is that the time bomb that the left has placed in our society and the Republican complicence in that fundamental transformation has gotten more severe further shifting that Overton window over on values, security, freedom, free markets, dependency, debt, whatever the measure is, interior enforcement, judicial control, that the consequences of what was put in place under Obama are much graver today than they were under, under his tenure on almost any measure on domestic policy. I understand the Israeli peace situation is a lot better than it was ever before. Look, I'm a religious Jew. I'm a Zionist. But dude, like, come on. If that's all you have to show, I mean, it says in Deuteronomy, God's eyes are always towards his land. He takes care of his land. Doesn't need us. America needs our attention. America needs our attention. And, and look, I, again, I got biblical values. You know, those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse them will be cursed. But again, if that's all you have to show for it, oh, I made a deal with the UAE. You know, we have bilateral uh, relations between Israel and the UAE. Again, lovely. But dude, I mean, our country's going to hell in a handbasket. At some point, results and outcomes have to matter. At some point, Brexit has to mean Brexit and the equivalent of what we're dealing with in America on this side of the ocean. So that's with that. Now, obviously, I want to move on to the latest news on the virus. And again, I'm just going to let you know here that that is the single issue of our time because that encompasses the metrics of liberty, that encompasses crime, the corona jailbreak. It's the mental health of a nation. And it's certainly the fiscal spending, the dependency, it's everything. So, you know, 
if I'm if I'm a Republican running for office, I'm a conservative. I'm for limited government. I'm for low taxes. I support a second amendment. You know the typical stuff. But then you know you you don't fight back against Corona fascism, and in fact you go along with it. So it's a joke. It, it, it's like it's like a team like you know a, a sports team when it comes to the playoffs. You're just like MIA, and you just say, "Well, I'm just going to lose." Well, that's when it all matters. This is it. This is not just one issue. This is everything. This is everything. Now, I was looking at what's going on with these college campuses. It's truly unbelievable. What they're doing is they're stealing their money, and then once they get there, they put them in jail. Like, they they make their dorm rooms like prisons, and a lot of times, they have Zoom classes. So, that's the trick. They say they're having in-person classes, but not really. They get them on the campus and then have Zoom from their dorm room. In the state of Alabama, I'm talking about University of Alabama having 1,300 cases. Do you know that there's not a single hospitalization, not one? And probably almost all of them are these notional positive tests that are just like super amplified. They don't even know they have it, and they're not contagious. And it's not even clear how many of them got it there. Because again, now that we know that these PCR tests are are picking up dead virus cells, so it could be they had it a couple of weeks ago before the semester started. They got it from, you know, the older adults in their community, in their homes. But can you imagine, you look at some of these pictures, they look like psych wards, these dorms. These isolation rooms and they come in with the hazmats and it's scary. What do you think that's going to do to a generation of Americans? How do you quantify a report that 44% of Californians have clinical levels of depression? That's 17.6 million people. Okay? Even if you agree with the reported coronavirus death numbers, they've had about 12,000 deaths in, in, in California, a state of 40 million. 17.6 million clinically depressed. And again, when there is no evidence that the people who died could have been saved. No evidence whatsoever. So that's one story I just want to share with you. And then again, with, with the kids with the kids that we see, I think that number according to CDC survey among 18 to 24 year olds, it was like 62% being clinically depressed, 62.9%. And of course, 25.5% having contemplated suicide. Again, not a single college age death, not just in college, but anyone of that age in the state of Alabama. And this is what University of Alabama is doing. How do you quantify such a thing? This is a case of coronaphobia. And again, the thing about coronaphobia is, unlike the virus, which obviously both attenuates over time and also goes along with it, it builds herd immunity in the population, the phobia gets worse over time and never achieves immunity. It feeds on itself. One interesting study I um, wanted to share with you about 
impact on childhood um, cancer patients. So just to show how little effect this has on children, young adults even, even those that are immunocompromised. So the European Hematology Association put out a report where they found that, you know, they, they studied, um, you know, like pediatric uh, leukemia or lymphoma patients or hematological disorders. Quote, the course of disease has been mild in many children affected, even if severely immunocompromised. Reports from 25 countries worldwide covering a population of approximately 10,000 children and young people on anti-cancer therapy, so like there are, let's say on you know chemotherapy, identified only nine children that tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. Eight of the nine cases were asymptomatic to mild disease. At the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, of the 20 patients that tested positive in this study group, only one required hospitalization for COVID-related symptoms, and it was non-critical care in Italy in six pediatric um, hemato-oncological oncology centers in Lombardy. Uh, 21 cases were identified. Only two patients had, had issues, you know, complications from it. And situation is similar for children with non-cancerous hematological disorders. The UK National um, Hemoglobin, uh, what is this? Hemoglobinophony Panel, I don't think I pronounced that right, uh, reported 195 cases of COVID-19, of which 20 were children. And 10.5% uh, of adults required intensive care for airway support, meaning that trouble breathing. None among the children that had those disorders. In France, the PICU at the Hospital Necker Enfants Malade reported four children with sickle cell disease and COVID-19. All required non-invasive airway support and all made a full recovery. So that's how little of a problem this is among children. Yet here we are. And look, you know, people, it's pretty rare that they have those. It's a small percentage among children. Theoretically, if you want, you could have them not come to school, whatever. You know, that's something on an individual level with, with a competent doctor you work out. But the point is, I'm just trying to show you how even for immunocompromised, they don't have that. And by the way, there's a new study out from Oxford. It just came out yesterday on, on uh, I'm trying to think where this was, where I saw this. And yeah, it's Meta XIV. Um, this is Oxford and Cambridge researchers, Sam Palmer, among others, at all. They found fascinating. T cells. T cells are everything. So much so, T cells appears to be the predominant factor in determining, you know, the issues with people. They found you look at this and it's a sliding scale on age. 
and they found that hospitalization rates follow an exponential relationship with age, increasing 4.5% per year of life. Guess what? This mirrors the exponential decline of thymus volume and T-cell production about 4.5% a year. It decreases, and that's what it is. So the older you get in general, the fewer T-cell production you have. That's what it is. These are factors beyond our control. This is God. God's in control of this. We're just learning the science behind it. And what's interesting is they find, interestingly enough, I was always wondering about this, that men seem to deplete more T-cell production over time than women do. Because there's a clear, like if you look at people, you know, 65, 70, 75, like kind of that uh, age range where, you know, young seniors, there seems to be a much greater risk among men, many more fatalities than among women. And again, I've said before, there's a study out of Germany that shows that parents of school-age children and teachers who are around them seem to do better than a control group that, you know, is single and doesn't have children because they they got the viruses more often, right? So if you, you know, on average got coronaviruses and, and they actually posit in the study I just mentioned from Oxford that it could be not just coronaviruses, but especially with kids, just an unknown number of respiratory viruses that they always have, you know, that might not be corona in nature, might also provide some degree of T-cell cross-reactivity. Just an interesting thing to throw out there. You know, again, um, our baby, our newborn baby who is um, four and a half months now, she's been congested for like two months straight. I mean, like really congested. And that's how they often are. They're just always congested. And God knows what they have, um, what sort of pathogen they have. And 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 it's by design. It's This is truly intelligent design. And that's why... We're not seeing a problem with babies dying as we've seen with, you know, even the 1957 Asian flu and certainly uh, some of the other flus, uh, H1N1 is a problem for babies. Uh, this, this is not. And this is where we are. It just doesn't make a difference. No matter what. We can't get a movement, a party, speaking coherently about this. It's truly unbelievable. You can't make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. This is what Trump needs to change. You know, Trump said last night in an interview with Laura Ingram, quote, I inherited him, referring to, to Fauci. He was a part of this huge machine. He's been there for many, many years. I understand that. But once he became so prominent and became the spokesman for your administration, and literally promoted everything Biden said he would, and Biden said he would keep him, you could get rid of him. I mean, you don't even have to fire him if you believe he's such an institution. God forbid you fire him from his position at NIH, but fine, but you just kick him off the task force, and you're done. I mean, you can't speak on behalf of of the White House. Done. Now he's been a little bit neutered. uh, He had surgery on his voice. Maybe there is a divine uh, intervention after all. But 
Burks is now taking his place and doing this stuff. She needs to go. This is the story of our, of our time. And yes, on the mass stuff. By the way, as I'm talking, a friend of mine, Ian Miller on Twitter, just put out the situation in Hawaii has gotten even worse. Again, they had universal mask wearing the entire time. Professor Carl Hennigan, Oxford University. Quote, let's be clear. The high quality trial evidence for cloth masks suggests they increase your rate of reinfection. Okay, they spread the virus. So, there's so much to talk about. There's so much data and literature from our government's own websites, from, you know, very prominent academics they could draw upon. For the life of me, I don't understand why we don't have a more coherent message. But that's because we don't have a coherent party. And then we have the jailbreak. That as it gets worse, Republicans brag about how much jailbreak they're going to do. Oh, Trump did criminal justice reform. Let me end off with a story that brings this kind of full circle all together. Where jailbreak meets Corona fascism. Where now the BLM Antifa jailbreaked army. They created an army for the left to enforce their sense of morality. Brooklyn man, 68, slashed across the face by knife-wielding subway passenger for not wearing a mask. A knife attack on an elderly man has left him in serious condition. The victim, whose name has not been released, was reportedly riding a subway. According to police, the incident happened on Friday, August 28th, around 4.35 p.m., broad daylight. He boarded a number two train, and a fellow passenger started an argument with him for not wearing a mask. The accused, who was wearing a blue surgical mask around his chin, took out a knife and slashed the victim across the left side of his face. This is becoming very common, by the way. We're seeing this. And uh, it was caught on video. They'll probably get him. Nothing will happen. And there we go. And by the way, I'm hearing news, late-breaking news, that remember that guy we talked about yesterday, Jose Reyes, on a New York subway who was caught in broad daylight trying to rape a woman and almost did, and he was arrested 14 times at 14 priors, and he was offered just 75,000 cash bail, which often means you only have to uh, give up up front $7,500. And I said, this guy's going to get out. I'm hearing that he did. I have to confirm that. But this, this is the world we live in. Imagine if we had a party built on the principles of this show, built on the news stories of this show. Where would public opinion be then? That's what leadership is. See... When you hesitate and you equivocate, that's when you lose. I always say the beauty of the left is that they don't debate. They don't torture their souls over something. They do. And the doing creates a certain aura of legitimacy because like, people believe what they see. 
well, if we're shutting down schools, I mean, it's got to be harmful to kids, right? We would never do such a thing, such a dramatic thing, if the threat assessment, if the threat level didn't warrant it, and if there was no, you know, proven effectiveness of the measures we're doing. Well, no, actually not. But that, that, but you see what I mean? That's what helps their cause. We could do the same thing. The audacity to do. Again, coming full circle, we started off um, giving a tribute to Barack Obama. And, and, and I really do admire people like that, that stand up for their views. The audacity of hope. He had audacity. He had temerity. Where is that on our side? You know, the closest thing we have is Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. You know, he's given in on some things more than I would have liked for him to do, but it's tough being the only person. But yesterday, you seen back in his element, said very clearly, we're never doing lockdowns again. He had Dr. Scott Atlas with him. Great press conference. Atlas and DeSantis, that's the party we need. But that's the party we we do not have in any sense of the word. This is what I want you guys to start thinking. Don't just look at the news of the day. Look broadly at a continuity of observations and measure long-term outcomes. Don't get stuck with that temperature rising on you like a frog in boiling water or like you know someone just living with gravity or the earth turning on its orbit and you don't realize it you don't realize how we've moved that's the worst thing that could happen the worst thing that could happen is that we give up all hope on our views on the truth that we're happy with a new normal that liberty means to wear a mask I'll, you know, being able to have your business open or go to school, albeit you have to wear a face burka for the rest of your life. At least we're open. Could be worse. Well, at least the Democrats aren't, you know, but, you know, as in president. Well, we could be spending even more money, have even more debt. Well, even more people could be on government dependency. Although the truth is, at some point, it's going to be a hundred percent. You know, at some point, if we become happy with where we are. The left has won, no matter what. Anyway, I hope today's show was engaging as always. Again, comments, concerns, if you disagree with me, email me at dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.